Hi, welcome to the Benbar Prairie podcast. Benbar Prairie is a place of peace, vital history, and Christian charity in the heart of Ulster. We offer this podcast as an extension of our mission. So please like, share, and subscribe in order to support our ministry. And in this episode of the Benbar Prairie podcast, I'm joined by the wonderful Dr. Christopher Kayser from the US. Chris is a professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University in the USA. He's written more than 100 scholarly articles and book chapters, and his 15 books include The Gospel of Happiness, The Seven Big Myths About Marriage, and his marvelous recent one on Jordan Peterson. He lives with his wife and seven children in Los Angeles. So just to begin then, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about your background and some of the key events in your life that helped to form you and your love for Christ and his church? Sure. Uh, you know, when I that question is a hard one for me because it's a little bit like asking me, um, you know, why do you love your mother? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I can tell you why I love my mother. And I can start off by saying, uh, you know, before I was born, you know, my mother uh, took care of me. And I think the same thing's true for me in terms of the church, because I was uh, conceived uh, outside of marriage and my mother had a kind of crisis pregnancy. And the church uh, helped her by providing housing for her in a, a mother's home. And so I was born there. And then uh, when I was a little baby, the uh, good sisters that worked in that orphanage uh, took care of me and uh, nurtured me. And as I grew, I feel that church uh, continued to sort of care for me and take care of me. I was lucky to go to good uh, schools, including the University of Notre Dame, uh, sponsored by the, by the church. And uh, just as my uh, human mother on earth provides me with ongoing food and consolation, uh, so too uh, the church does does that also. So it's uh, difficult in a way, and in fact, almost impossible in a way for me to adequately um, bring to mind all that God has done for me uh, through the church. But again, I think of the church uh, as similar to my mother in that, you know, is my mother perfect? Is she uh, always done everything, you know, just the way I wanted? Well, no, I mean, my mom is human. And so she makes mistakes like everybody else. Uh, but on the whole, I think uh, of people on earth, I can't think of anyone I'm more grateful to than my own mother who, who raised me and took care of me. And in terms of institutions, I can't think of any institution that has done more for me uh, than the church in terms of taking care of me when I was uh, an orphan, in terms of uh, providing uh, valuable education for me, and most of all, in terms of feeding me with uh, the Eucharist. I think at the end of the day, it's the Eucharist that is the central uh, benefit, you might say, of being Catholic, because, you know, you can encounter God if you're on your own and you're, you know, wandering in the mountains and you're uh, experiencing God's beauty in nature. And that's definitely true. I think I've done, I've had that experience myself. But the beauty of the Eucharist is that it is not just experiencing a creation that comes from God, which is great but is experiencing God himself. That is to say, in the Eucharist, of course, as Catholics, we believe that God actually comes to us, that God actually enters into us, that we are able to experience in a way, almost like Mary did, God inside of us. And so for me, that is, you know, ultimately the greatest gift. And, you know, whether the, the homily is good or bad and whether the music's good or bad, you know, I obviously I like good homilies and I like good music. I like all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the the real treasure, the real, the the greatest beauty is actually in the Eucharist itself. And so, since that is only found, uh, you know, as given by the Church, that is in a sense the Church's greatest gift to to everybody. 
Mm. Amen. Thanks for that, now, Chris. And um, then today, I'd love to focus on something slightly different, a, a character you've written about recently, Jordan Peterson. So you've written this wonderful new book, Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. And uh, whilst he's not, a, how would you even put it, a self-professing Christian in a more formal sense, he's serving as a wonderful bridge for many people to the church. And I know many stories of people who've become Christian in part through his work and uh, then your book is looking at those issues and some of those intersections. So I want to just ask you first, then, what moves you to really wrestle seriously with Jordan Peterson's work? I find Jordan Peterson's work uh, tremendously interesting. So I didn't start off, uh, you know, intending to write about him, but I just was listening to his uh, podcasts and watching some of his videos. And I just found it really, really interesting. And I think part of the reason I find it so interesting, and, and many others too, is that he seems to be genuinely seeking after greater insight. So many times in his talks, he'll pause, and it's pretty clear, unless he's a great actor, that he's actually kind of thinking through uh, what he's going to say. Mm -hmm. And I found that very refreshing, especially in times where so many people just kind of spin out um, uh, sound bites and talking points. And it, it seems like they're not even thinking about what they're saying. They just have this sort of things they're going to say and they kind of say it without it seems really thinking too much about it but peterson seemed to me to not be like that at all so i i really appreciated that and then also for me it when i was listening to his lectures on genesis i was struck again and again by the ways in which his own interpretations of genesis echoed the reading of genesis that was given by many figures in the catholic tradition people like Augustine of Hippo and Origen and Thomas Aquinas. And again and again, when he was talking about Genesis, you know, these uh, echoes would arise in my mind because I had read those figures myself. And so I knew, you know, that what he was saying was actually not uh, entirely unique to him. So I don't mean to say that he's plagiarizing. I don't think he was. I think he was thinking through the text himself. But what he was doing in a way, I would say, is reinventing the wheel. He was coming to the same conclusions that that these earlier figures had come to. And so I found that really important and really fascinating. And so I started to write a little bit about how his interpretations of scripture would fit in with these earlier interpretations of scripture and showing a sort of a consonance between, between those two. And then also trying to show that some of these earlier figures actually kind of developed his own, what Peterson's view, in other words, if Peterson were to take on these insights to a greater degree, his own project, his own thought would develop and move forward in, in a really interesting way. So that's sort of how I got into Peterson's thought. And I have to confess that I remain fascinated uh, by his thought and I enjoy listening to his podcast still. And, and uh, so I'm very encouraged actually by you know, his thoughtful exploration of these uh, important issues. Yeah, wonderful. And um, I share that uh, relative enthusiasm anyway. And even from my personal experiences, seeing him online, even things like that, he's corresponded a little bit with me and he's always been most forthcoming. He seems like a genuinely nice person. But uh, yet it seems to be a persistent claim that he's maybe number one controversial or even I've seen some Catholics suggest uh, that he's a charlatan. Why do you think that um, we shouldn't just ignore him and uh, maybe be taken in by some of those claims then? Well, 
it is true that he's controversial. I don't think there's any any two ways about that. Uh, I attribute that to the fact that he is willing to say what he thinks is true, even if in certain contexts that may cause controversy or cause people to uh, get upset with him. Uh, I'm not sure that's a really a vice though. I think it's actually a virtue to say what you think is true. I mean, of course you have to use practical wisdom and it's not always appropriate to say everything on every occasion, but I think that the courage he shows in speaking his mind is something really commendable. And I think in general, the world would be, would be a better place if there was more honesty, more open communication, more truthful communication, rather than lies and talking points and I'm spin and I'm just gonna you know, try to get my side to win regardless of the truth of the matter. I think that that kind of spin and, and, and lying is, is actually really detrimental to political discourse and certainly to living a full human life. Now, is he a charlatan? Well, the man has a PhD. Uh, he was a professor for many years at Harvard. He is a full professor at the University of Toronto, which is one of the very best institutions in uh, the world. So, uh, you know, he has uh, books, he has tons of scholarly publications that are peer, peer reviewed. So, uh, you know, if he's a charlatan, I, I wonder what would count as not a charlatan. I mean, <laughs> these credentials are extremely hard to argue with. Um, so I definitely understand disagreeing with Peterson. I disagree with Peterson. So for instance, he has a pragmatic understanding of truth. And mm -hmm. I think the correspondence understanding of truth is better. Um, I disagree with him on all kinds of things. But to say he's a charlatan, he's just like some quack and he's a complete idiot. I don't see how that's at all fair. I just, mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you're saying that, that is more a commentary on your own, uh, on, on you than on him. Yeah, fantastic. And um, years of clinical experience too, which he uses often anecdotally to back up the, that empirical research that he's done. And right. I can agree with you more. And um, I want to ask you a bit more back to the point about the Bible then, and how does Jordan read the Bible in ways like the church fathers that maybe contrast with more simplistic conceptions that are especially relevant or um, resonant in the popular culture, maybe? So the church fathers talked about different senses of scripture. And what they meant is, that a story can have multiple meanings. So if you take a story like the story of Cain and Abel, you might say the literal meaning is one brother kills another brother. Uh, but then you have other meanings too. You have what they call the moral reading of scripture. And the moral reading of scripture would be that the story of Cain and Abel is not just a story about two brothers, but it's a kind of universal story about envy and jealousy. And it is therefore a story that applies to really everyone. I mean, I do have a brother, but even if I didn't have a brother, I've experienced envy and jealousy of people. And I think that's true of everybody, even if you're an only child, right? So it's not really about, you know, two brothers, but it's about the universal human experience of seeing someone else flourish and being resentful of that. And so Peterson interprets this story in that sort of way as a story capturing, uh, a universal human experience, and then also capturing one way of responding to that universal human experience. Because I think everybody virtually, well, no, I think everybody except for babies or something, mm -hmm. um, has experienced envy and jealousy, right? You look at someone else and they're richer than you are, uh, better looking than you are, stronger than you are, 
more socially accepted than you are and you're jealous. Now, what do you do with that? Well, that's what the story of Cain and Abel is really about. Now, I think where, where some contemporary readers of scripture uh, go off track is when they try to read scripture, say, especially Genesis, as if it were a science textbook. And the problem with that is that the original writer of Genesis and the original readers of Genesis, they weren't writing about contemporary science. And so reading the story of Genesis, uh, say the creation story, as if it's science, is a little bit like reading that story and looking in the story for whether the story is for or against iPhones. I mean, imagine you read Genesis and you're like really just looking for every line and is this for iPhones or against iPhones? I mean, I think you can see that's that's crazy. It's not about cell phones at all, right? They didn't have iPhones. They didn't have Android phones. They didn't have phones. So the story is just not about phones. In a similar way, looking at Genesis and saying, is this for evolution? Is this against evolution? Is similarly misguided. The original readers of Genesis, the original author of Genesis, they weren't thinking for or against evolution. It's just not about that at all. So what is it about? Well, I think the best way to understand Genesis is to put it in its proper context. And the proper context of Genesis is not contemporary debates about evolution. It's not contemporary debates about should I buy an iPhone or should I buy an Android phone? It's just not about those things at all. Well, what is it about? Well, it's a creation story, and it is a rival story to the other stories that were told in the ancient world about creation. So what are those stories? Well, Peterson talks about some of those stories, like the Babylonian account of creation. And in that story, what happens is you have rival gods, you have a cosmic battle, and you have the creation, the universe, as arising out of that cosmic battle. Genesis, by contrast, is putting forward a totally different view. And what it's saying is there's not rival gods, there's only one God, there's not a cosmic battle at the beginning of creation, but rather creation arises through what? It arises through orderly speech. God says, let there be light, and there was light. In other words, the story is saying in a very beautiful and poetic way that creation is orderly. Creation is not a chaotic battlefield that is just, you know, a meaningless array of things that have no sense or sensibility. Rather, creation is orderly. And that belief, centuries later, is what gives rise to science. So centuries later, people believing that the universe is orderly, they say, okay, the universe is orderly, let's investigate that order. Let's look and try to figure out what that order is. And so centuries later, contemporary science arises precisely by people who believe that the universe is orderly. So I think that Genesis is an incredibly important text, but I think we misread it if we try to read it as if it's a science report, just like we would misread Shakespeare's poetry if we read it as a weather report, right? So Sonnet 18 says, um, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May and summer's lease hath all too short a date. So if I read that and I say, okay, rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. And I look up in a, in a weather almanac. Now, was it windy in May? Let's see. Oh, no, it wasn't windy in May. Oh, Shakespeare, you're an idiot. The almanac says there's no rough winds in May. Well, that's totally misreading Shakespeare. That's like the dumbest way of reading Shakespeare there could be. It's mm -hmm. not, Shakespeare's not trying to provide a weather almanac. 
right? So we shouldn't read his poetry as if it's a weather report, right? <laughs> and we shouldn't read Genesis as if it is a contemporary report on science. Yeah, fantastic. And I think in line with what you're saying there, um, Peterson is humble enough to allow for those different readings. But yet, I think he avoids maybe another trap of um, saying it's just mythology, whatever that would mean. So therefore, it doesn't have any um, objective backing behind it. He's at least open to the possibility that it, there are objective truths and trans-subjective truths and things that he talks about too. So I'm kind of interested um, in that respect, how he differs maybe with people who I think offer a more simplistic picture, like the new atheistic kind of approaches, even his friend Sam Harris. And um, maybe what's some of the differences between how Jordan is conducting himself, I think, probably in line with what you said, more with humility versus Sam, who maybe speaks outside of his uh, area of expertise in ways that are um, quite harmful to the public culture. Do you have any thoughts on that kind of intersection? Yeah, so when we think about the truth, we can differentiate different kinds of truths. So it is the case that there are some kinds of truths that are scientific, right? If you have the truth, you know, force equals mass times acceleration, right? A truth in physics. That kind of truth is one kind of truth and you get at that kind of truth through empirical tests and through scientific theories. But that is not the only kind of truth. Now, some people think it is. Some people have a view which I'll call scientism and according to scientism, truth is the only, or science rather, is the only way to discover any truth. If a truth is not scientifically proved, well, then it's no truth at all. But scientism is a problematic view, in part because scientism is self-contradictory. There is no scientific study that shows that the only way to find truth is through science. If you look in biology, right, and you dissect a frog, you know, you cut up with the frog, you don't see behind the frog's liver, you know, science alone provides the truth, right? Or in physics, right? Physics teaches us all kinds of things, but there's no physics equation that says science alone provides the truth. The same thing's true in chemistry, the same thing's true in all the sciences. So science itself can't show and does not show, and there's no scientific evidence that science alone provides the truth. So we shouldn't reject scientific truth. I think we should embrace it, but we can't limit ourselves simply to that. And part of the reason we can't limit ourselves simply to that is that there are unbelievably important questions that science alone does not answer. So think about one of the most important questions that uh, anyone asks. And that would be the question, will you marry me? Yes, I'll marry you, right? Think of those questions about marriage. Now. Those questions are not questions that we can have scientific proof about. Now, I could say, well, there's a scientific study that says, you know, this kind of person is going to be more likely to be a good marriage partner. Okay, well, there's science in that way. But there's no scientific study that says, uh, Christopher Kayser, yes, you should marry Jennifer Turner, mm -hmm. right? That goes beyond science, right? So, but in my life, that was one of the most important questions that I had to answer, you know, should I marry this person or not? And likewise, in terms of life, not just in terms of marriage, but in terms of other, you might say existential questions, science doesn't say one way or the other what the answer is. So we need more than science. And I would say that we need truths that can be found in literature. We need truths that can be found in poetry. 
We need truths that are found through our own human experience, and we need truths that are found through philosophy and through theology. So I think life is way too complex to limit it simply and only to truths found by science. And again, that's not to denigrate science or to put science down. Science is great. Uh, my friend Edward Fazer uh, likens science to using a metal detector. So if you lose, say you're at the beach and you lose a, your a ring, well, getting out a metal detector and you know using that in the sand to try to find your ring is terrific, and it might help you find your ring. But let's say you're at the beach and you lose a diamond. Well, you can be there with a the metal detector all day long, and you're never going to find the diamond, right? Because metal detectors, just of their nature, aren't set up to, to detect diamonds. Mm -hmm. So in our life, too, there are some questions you might say there are questions about metal, right? Questions about you know, how do we relieve this disease? And science can help us answer those questions. And that's super important. But there's other questions in our lives that are like seeking after diamonds, right? Who should I marry? Is there life after death? Does God exist? What's the purpose of my life, if any? And for those questions, science and science alone is insufficient. It's just not going to answer those questions. And so we need to turn to something broader. We need to turn to philosophy, to theology, to these other sources of human wisdom, to try to come to good answers for those questions. Yeah, fantastic. And I think in line with that, um, what I appreciate about people like Jordan is that they open up that um, epistemological and hermeneutical space and realize that the, there are um, interpretive communities and things like that, that you can't just rely on science to self-evident. And um, I think your work demonstrates that too, especially coming from a philosophical background is important. And um, I think in line with that, again, I wanted to ask you, uh, it seems that Jordan recently has been reading and wrestling with different books, including your own and um, Stephen Meyer's Return of the God Hypothesis, for example, which he's spoken about. I want to ask you then, based on that, what are some of the best ways that Jordan or people like Jordan can then come closer to the Catholic worldview as a whole from that more physicalist and um, pragmatist perspective as you referenced? Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of things that can be important to explore. So if we acknowledge that science and science alone can't answer all of our questions, right? Again, the marriage question, it can't answer. It can't answer whether God does exist or does not exist. But if we look to science, we can use science to help us not to answer the question, but to provide some evidence that does help us to answer the question. So if we think of God's existence, there's a famous argument called the Kalam cosmological argument. And the argument goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. That's a major premise. The universe began to exist. That's the minor premise. And the conclusion is the universe has a cause. So with those two premises, science does provide us some reason to believe both. So the first premise, whatever begins to exist has a cause. If we investigate things scientifically, we find that everything that begins to exist does have a cause, right? Think of you know trees that you know uh, get planted and, and grow, or human babies, or dogs, or even planets themselves begin to exist, and all of those things have a cause. And I think there's good philosophical reasons for begin for believing that whatever begins to exist has a cause. And one of those reasons is that. Something that does not exist cannot cause itself to come into existence. So I don't have a uh, great granddaughter, right? There's no such person that exists. 
And so my great-granddaughter, maybe someday I will, but right now I don't. So my great-granddaughter can't do anything, right? She can't get me a cup of coffee. She can't help me mow the lawn. She can't do anything because she doesn't exist. But because she can't do anything, she can't cause anything. And if she can't cause anything, she can't cause herself to exist. So whatever begins to exist, like my great-granddaughter, has to be caused. And that brings us to the minor premise that the universe began to exist. Now, in that book, The God Hypothesis, the author goes over lots of scientific reasons that have given a lot of evidence that the universe did begin to exist. So at the beginning of the 20th century, some scientists like Albert Einstein thought that the universe was eternal. But more and more evidence came out that the universe is not eternal. And so scientists, including Albert Einstein, changed their minds and said, no, the universe does have a beginning. And so now this is a well-established fact in terms of cosmology. The universe is about 13 billion years old. So you might say, you know, 20 billion years ago, there just was no universe. There was no time, there's no space, there's no matter. So all time, all space, and all matter came into existence about 13 billion years ago. And there's abundant scientific evidence for that claim. So if we put these two premises together, whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Okay, the cause of the universe has to be prior to time, since it gives rise to time, it has to be timeless or eternal. The cause of the universe has to be prior to matter, since it gives rise to matter, so it has to be non-material or immaterial, or you might say spiritual. And the cause of the universe has to be unbelievably powerful because to give rise to all time, all space, and all matter is obviously something that requires a great deal of power. So you have something unbelievably immensely powerful. Well, in English, what do you call the cause of the universe who's immaterial, who's non-spatial, who is immensely powerful? Well, the word usually given to that is God. Now, you don't have to call it God. You could call it you know, the supreme being or the creator or, or whatever you want, really. But the idea is there has to be some being that is the cause of the universe, that's immensely powerful, that is immaterial, that is prior to time, that is outside of matter, that is outside of space. That being has to exist. And science provides us evidence for those two premises, that whatever begins to exist has a cause and the universe began to exist. And so there has to be some cause of the universe that is very much like what Christians, Jews, and Muslims call God. And um, unfortunately, then, a lot of people respond to that with the multiverse as a kind of panacea, but uh, people like Mayer address that uh, critique and show that even that uh, conception itself is uh, unfalsifiable, and it's not a scientific theory per se, it's a, um, a philosophical claim, if, any, if nothing else. And um, it's go I suppose you're in a realm then beyond probability when you're talking about beyond time, matter, and space too, isn't it? So uh, if anyone wants to follow that up, I just want wanted to say say that because you'd I'd imagine there'd be some commenters oh with the multiverse or something, but that is that's covered right. too, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and also, uh, William Lane Craig addresses that also in his work on the Kalam cosmological argument. Mm -hmm. So, and and moreover, scientists talk about this. So. Uh, I think it's William Penrose who, who argued that on scientific grounds, 
even a multiverse has to begin with a singularity. It has to begin with an absolute beginning. So even the multiverse hypothesis, which is just that, uh, an hypothesis that is not grounded in any known empirical evidence, even that hypothesis is itself something that would be subject to having a beginning, at least according to um, some physicists. Yeah, thank you for that, Chris. And um, just bringing it back down to earth, as it were, then I wanted to ask yeah. you about um, Jordan again, and how does Jordan's emphasis on male and female distinctions um, complement the more traditional Judeo-Christian anthropology? And why is that especially important today? And again, I suppose that's another controversial one. Well, it is controversial, as you say, <laughs> but maybe it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it really shouldn't be. And I, I think we can talk about it and explain it in terms of differences between males and females that, that everyone acknowledges. So on average, men are taller than women. Now, that fact is totally compatible with the fact that there are some women who are, you know, six foot 10. And so they're taller than almost all men. And then there's some men who are, you know, four foot, you know, four foot 10. So they're shorter than almost all women. So what you're looking at, in other words, are kind of two bell curves that partially overlap. But you can say on average that the average man or most men are taller than the average woman or are taller than most women, even though it's also true that there are some women that are taller than almost all men and some women or some men are shorter than almost all women. Now, when you look at human personality, uh, as Jordan Peterson points out, you find similar differences. So on average, men are more interested in things, and on average, women are more interested in people. And so you find, therefore, professions that are more male-dominated and more professions that are more female-dominated. So why is it that, say, coal miners are overwhelmingly male, right? People on oil rigs, overwhelmingly male. And why do you find to say that kindergarten teachers are overwhelmingly female? Well, if it's true that on average, there's these personality differences between men and women, what you'd expect to find is some professions like coal mining having more men because coal mining is dealing with things and oil rigging is dealing with things. And being a kindergarten teacher, by contrast, is more focused on people, right? On little people. So these differences are things that shouldn't surprise us. So when we find, for instance, more men that are coal miners and more women that are kindergarten teachers, one of the things that Jordan Peterson pushes back on is the idea that that, is, that difference is itself evidence of injustice, inequality, bias, prejudice. And the only way to explain the fact that there are more female kindergarten teachers and more male coal miners is that you know there's a, an oppressive patriarchy that's forcing women to be kindergarten teachers and forcing men to be coal miners. Well, Peterson says, I think quite rightly, well, no, there's another explanation that on average, you find more men interested in things and more women interested in people. Now, we can have that view and still hold that if you're a woman who wants to be a coal miner, that should be perfectly fine. And you shouldn't be you know, forbidden from doing that. You shouldn't be kicked out of the coal mining you know, uh, industry. And likewise, if you're a man who wants to be a kindergarten teacher, that also should be allowed. You shouldn't be you know, banned from teaching kindergarten just because you're a man. But we can't attribute these differences on average to oppressive patriarchal, hierarchical, hierarchical uh, structures the way some people uh, want to do. And so the fact of these on average differences 
is something in a way that is reflected in terms of um, you know, biological realities that don't go away in more, you might say, uh, societies that have more gender equality. So these differences on average do not go away in places like Sweden. In fact, these differences on average get greater in places like Sweden. So we can't attribute these differences to, oh, it's the oppressive patriarchy, because you know, I think everybody can agree that Sweden has less oppressive patriarchy than Algeria, say. Right? And yet these differences are exaggerated and grow greater in a place like Sweden. So I think Jordan Peterson's right about the science on this, and he's obviously not alone. This is not something distinctive or unique to Jordan Peterson. This is held by many other pe people, like I think of Steven Pinker at Harvard University, who has a very, very similar view. Yeah, wonderful. And Dr. Thomas Sowell, too, mm -hmm. I've gained a lot from. And um, I think I appreciate, too, that recognition in Jordan of our creaturely status and even um, using comparisons from the animal kingdom, famously lobsters and things like that, and how yeah. it's not just a simplistic uh, human-centered picture either. And um, I want to move on to another point then, if we may, Chris. So um, contrary really to our complacent, in many ways, secularist notion of ourselves as basically good, and in a kind of um, expressive individualist mold or in a more emotivist sense, what role does uh, what we call the fall then that you mentioned in the book play in the, the real cosmic Christian drama and um, in making us better people then what role might Jordan's work play in that? Well, when you talk about human beings being good or bad, I think that is, we can be more differentiated when we're talking about this question. So one way to think about it is that human beings are good in certain respects, but also are not good in other respects. So what do I mean? Well, think about a child. It seems to me a little child is really good in many respects, right? They're cute. They have a great curiosity about the world. They can be very loving. There's all kinds of wonderful things about a little child. But I think we can also see in a little child some ways in which little children aren't yet good. They're not yet virtuous. So for instance, most little children have a good deal of impulse control and they just impulsively eat too much or, you know, eat all the bag, you know, all the candy at Halloween or something. And you can say, well, you know, that's, that's really not good. Um, most little children don't have practical wisdom. Why? Well, because they have no experience, right? If you're five years old, you've hardly lived at all. And so it's really impossible for you to have the practical experience that you need in order to make really informed, good decisions. And that's why as a society, we don't allow little children to drive cars, to get married, to sign up for the military. There's all kinds of restrictions on what little kids can do, because I think we rightly recognize that they're lacking in practical wisdom. And so they're not ready for the responsibilities that come with you know, adult kinds of life. And so what human beings are is this very interesting uh, complexity right, where we really do have, you know, even from birth, some very, very good qualities, but we also are, you might say, fundamentally incomplete. And so this insight isn't really distinctively Christian. You find this in Aristotle, right? So Aristotle would say, to develop the virtues, we have to do repeated practice, right? If I had to become courageous, I have to repeatedly face danger and overcome it. And again, think of how children need to develop these good virtues because a little child typically is afraid, right? They're afraid of the boogeyman. They're afraid of 
the dark. They're afraid of the creature under their bed that they think's there. They're afraid of everything. But hopefully if we grow up, we are able to confront these things that scare us and then hopefully move forward and then even do the right thing in the face of danger, in the face of things that scare us. Because to have a flourishing human life, we need to be able to endure difficulties and danger. I mean, not all of us are going to be on the battlefield facing death and battle, but all of us are going to face evil in one way or another and difficulty and suffering. And so are we going to have courage? Are we going to face those evils and face that suffering? Or will we just collapse and be, oh, I just can't do it. And we give up on life. Well, we can do that, of course, but if we have the virtue of courage, we're able to endure, we're able to move forward in this positive sort of way. So I think the Christian view would say both that human beings are good and that human beings are imperfect and they need to become perfected and gain these virtues. And one way of thinking about it is that God always loves us. So there's always a goodness in us that's given to us in creation by God. But one thing that doesn't always happen is we don't always love God, we don't lo always love other people, and we don't even always love ourselves. So we're imperfect, right? We have the perfection that God gives us of we're loved by God, but we're lacking the perfection that we could have if we loved God, if we loved other people, and if we loved ourselves. That's a kind of perfection that God can't just give us, that we need to cooperate with in some sense, or at least not reject. Yeah, wonderful. And I think um, something that's really refreshing again about Jordan is that he, if you watch the talk with Pajot, for example, when he is so taken aback by if what the Christian story is actually saying is true, then it should have such a profound impact on you and uh, gives life that ultimate value that you have to orient yourself towards. Whereas I think, again, some many of us take it kind of for granted, maybe because in, I suppose maybe that's the a dark side of um, the habit where it becomes maybe a so ritualized that you, you don't even realize how, the good that it's doing for you. Does that make sense? I think that's right. Yeah, I think you could have a, well, here's one way to put it. Christianity is not simply a theory, or Christians don't think Jesus is just a teacher, like a guru, like, like Jordan Peterson. But rather, what Christianity really is about is to be part of the body of Christ, to be have Christ's life to be in you, so that you're living in Christ, and Christ is living in you. So it's being adopted you might say, into the family of God. So for me, this is a really meaningful way of thinking about it, because as I kind of mentioned earlier, I'm adopted. So I am not a caser, you might say, by nature, by biology, right? I became a caser through adoption, and my parents chose to adopt me. And in a similar way, the Christian view, of course, is that God chooses to adopt us. Now, when we're adopted as children of God, we can live in accordance with that reality, I can live in accordance with the reality that I'm a caser and live up to my family's, you know, expectations and, and what, you know, is the best way to live uh, or not, right? Now, I'm always a caser in one sense because, you know, that's, I was adopted and all baptized people are adopted children of God, but some of them are like the prodigal son in the story. And so they're part of the, the family, but they run off and they go, you know, squander the inheritance and they live with the pigs. Mm -hmm. But the good news, I think, for us is, is that, you know, the door is always open for us to 
to return, right? And the very worst, most a person most distant from God, there's a, always a standing invitation from God to return to the uh, to the family, to celebrations with the family. And you know, as Catholics, I think we're especially blessed because the fact is everybody does things that are wrong. You know, you're an atheist, you're a Buddhist, you're agnostic, you're nothing. Everybody, I think, if they're honest with themselves, can look at their life and, and acknowledge sometimes where they really were unkind, they really did the wrong thing, they hurt someone's feelings. And that's a universal human thing. But as Catholics, I think we're incredibly lucky because we have a way of getting rid of the guilt and the shame that comes with doing things that are wrong. So it's a little bit like, you know, everybody makes garbage, right? Every day you eat food and there's a banana peel and there's always garbage that we're making just as human beings. But as Catholics, we're lucky, I think, because we have a way of taking out the garbage, right? We can get rid of all the stuff, all the problems that we've caused, you know, the sins and the shame and the guilt and the whatever, and just get rid of it in confession, move forward, let that go, start life with a blank slate, start life off new. And so that's a real blessing for us, I think, that we can do that. Yeah, wonderful. And um, I love that uh, offering that Christian critique of Jordan lovingly highlights the fact that God is active in history. And um, as Abraham Joshua Heschel said, in name is what you're saying there, God is also in search of man. It's not just the search from meaning on man's to God, but there is something beyond even the kind of Jungian archetypes and this iterated kind of religious game over time. And I think that your work is important in showing that uh, the drama that's actually taking place. And um, I want to ask you then about Jordan and how he sinks in with the Christian understanding of sin and the reality of sin. How is he helping us to bring our attention back to this uh, fallen nature and the reality of sin? Well, one of the things that he emphasizes quite often is the reality of conscience. So we do have, you might say, an inner voice that indicates to us when we are have done something wrong and also when we're about to do something wrong. I think everybody has experienced the reality that, you know, we interact with someone, we say something, and then we go away and we go, oh my gosh, well, I really shouldn't have said that. That was, I, I really hurt that person's feelings and I, I feel really bad about that. And what Peterson points out, which I think is, is important, is that this conscience, this, this judgment that we have is not something we can just get rid of. We can't just say, oh, forget it. I'm just going to just be as mean as I want to people. Who cares? I mean, we can say that to ourselves, and I think you can dull your conscience, right? So if you get drunk or high, you can kind of make it, uh, you know, dull it. But the fact is, when you sober up, <laughs> then, then you look back and you say, oh, geez, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. Now there's, you know, our relationship's damaged with this person, and oh, shoot, I shouldn't have done that. And we can't really alleviate that. And so the fact is that we have this inner voice. And John Henry Newman thought that this was the voice of God, that conscience was the, he called it the aboriginal vicar of Christ in us. And so it's interesting in a way that Jordan highlights this, this reality, because I do think it's a reality. I think if you talk to an atheist and you say, do you ever, you know, when you do something, do you ever have a sense of, wow, I really shouldn't have done that. That's really wrong. And 
this voice that we have, this, this conscience, we can't really deaden it and kill it. The best we can do is weaken it. And we do, we can weaken it through repeatedly doing bad things that, and eventually kind of feel as if, oh, it doesn't really, it's not really wrong. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, we can't totally eliminate this. And that is a, a striking phenomenon. So, so what do we do? Well, that's a good question. What do we do if we have the judgment that we've done something seriously wrong? Um, I know what Catholics do or can do is they can alleviate this through the sacrament. We have a kind of ritualized way of dealing with this human reality of sin. And I think that's really healthy because I think everyone has it. And I think many ways of dealing with this are not very healthy, not very helpful, mm -hmm. right? I feel really bad. So what do I do? I get really drunk and that'll make me kind of forget about it. But of course, if you do that, then you've got all the problems that come with, you know, getting really drunk. Then you've got a big hangover. You feel like hell physically, maybe you do more bad things because you got drunk. Anyway, you know, so you can see how that way of dealing with guilt is not really going to be very, very helpful. So I think we're really lucky really to have this, this incredibly healthy and, um, and good way of dealing with the reality of human brokenness. Yeah, wonderful. And I think uh, even many people who have that a uh, physicalist conception of the universe are starting to realize this, that the religious nature of man, and it seems to scale from the individual to the society and uh, we see the return of this kind of honoring and shaming whereby if people are cancelled if they have the wrong views and things like that and uh, people maybe that would have been in Peterson's camp have kept at that rather simplistic level and they're baffled about what's going on why are people acting so crazy yet not there's nothing new under the sun it's always been so and it just manifests itself in different societies and um People are acting religiously, even though they have a material, a physicalist conception of the cosmos. And um, I think Jordan is cognizant of that fact and seeing that play out and um, in ways that some of the maybe more simplistic new atheists don't, if that makes sense. And um, I want to ask you next about something that he talks about a lot, this whole notion of chaos and order and um, caution against utopian thinking, which I think is part of what I was trying to hit, hit out there. Can you tell us a little, about, um, a little bit about your chapter on some of those fascinating um, facets of his work and what you call the divine call to adventure? Sure. Yeah. So Jordan links up these universal themes to stories in Genesis. So if we talk about the dangers of utopia, he links that up to the story of the Tower of Babel, that the people wanted to build this tower that reaches all the way to heaven. And that's a, a symbolic way of talking about a kind of perfect society where everything is exactly, you know, right. Everything's amazing. And the effort to create perfection here on earth, uh, Peterson points out, I think quite rightly, ends up making things actually kind of hellish on earth. Because if you're going to make things perfect, what do you need? Well, you need perfect control over everything. But if you have perfect control over everything, what is that other than a totalitarian society? And in reality, what you have is an elite who judges what should be done. And if they have, you know, complete control over society, they force their views of what they think is perfect on everybody else. And the actual result of that is not perfection, but rather a kind of hellish situation like you had in uh, communist states, right? Where you've got the secret police informing on people and we're trying to get perfection here on earth. And so we need to have all the power and any dissent from our own view needs to be punished in the most strict way because you're standing in the way of our perfect utopia, 
you have things like Stalin's purges and his pogroms and and all the efforts that Stalin made to, uh, you know, perfect quote unquote uh, the Soviet Union. But again, what resulted in that were absolute absolute catastrophes. I mean, I think anybody who reads Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago can appreciate what hellish suffering was brought about with the best of intentions, right? We're gonna have this perfect society and no hunger and everything's gonna be great. Well, um, that's the goal, but the reality and the means used to get there were absolutely catastrophic. So I think Peterson is trying to help us to have realistic and more modest goals, not absolute perfection, but improvement. And improvement over time not only can happen, it is, it is happening and has happened. I mean, there are many, in terms of percentage of people that are, that are dying of hunger, there are a much smaller percentage of people now in the world dying from hunger than there were 100 years ago or 200 years ago. In other words, the percentage of people living in absolute poverty has plummeted. It used to be 99% of people were basically in absolute poverty. They were living on less than $2 a day. And now that percentage is all the way down to, well, pre-COVID. I don't know, after COVID, maybe things have shifted. But it, before COVID, shortly before, it was down to about 9% and heading lower. Mm-hmm. So you know what we should aim for is not absolute perfection. Everything is, uh, is amazingly perfect because we have perfect control of everything but rather for realistic and modest improvements. And that really is possible. Yeah, wonderful. And that's something C.S. Lewis talks about too. So um, we recently spoke for this podcast with Father Michael Ward, also uh, published through Word on Fire. And he uh, talked about the continuing relevance of C.S. Lewis. And I think uh, Jordan in some ways is like Lewis. And uh, I wanted to ask you, Another, another facet of his work is, and Jordan seems to be wrestling with this, is the, the um, centrality of the myth becoming fact. And I want to ask you, how does that fulfill then what Jordan has been unveiling with his work on myth, as we spoke about on biology and some of the many fields into which he's probed? So one of the ways in which Lewis thought of Christianity was that there are all these myths in the ancient world. And Lewis came to believe that these myths aren't just a bunch of nonsense, but do point to very deep desires of the human heart. And that it's possible, he thought, that a myth could become fact. That is to say that the deepest desires of the human heart expressed in various ways in various cultures could find a kind of culmination in a reality. Now, this is possible if there is such a thing as God. I mean, if God really exists, what you'd expect to find is God, as it were, communicating and inspiring people all over the world. And the church fathers sometimes called this the semina verba, the seeds of the word, that you kind of find in all different cultures in different ways. So you find it in uh, ancient Greek culture and Roman culture. And even though the church fathers weren't aware of these cultures, you could, in principle, find them in you know, Confucius and Latsu and in African culture and just, you know, in all different cultures. Now, did the myth become fact? Well, some things we know are fact. In other words, it's indisputable that there was an historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, 
about 100 years ago, there were some scholars who tried to do, say, oh, no, there was no such person. It's all made up. But basically now historians have recognized that there certainly was, historically speaking, a reality of someone named Jesus of Nazareth and that he was someone who preached about the kingdom of God, that he had followers, that he was killed uh, under Pontius Pilate, um, that he died. All these things are things that are widely recognized by atheistic historians as facts, as things that actually did happen. Now, where we get into disputed territory is, was Jesus, for example, someone who actually performed miracles? And this question, it seems to me, we can't answer until we answer a another question, and that is, well, does God exist? Now, if there is a being God, if God is powerful enough to create the whole universe, well, then God is certainly powerful enough to do the lesser thing of altering the created universe, of changing the universe, of causing a miracle outside the normal course of events. So if we answer the question, yes, there is a God, well, then it is possible that there are miracles, because if God exists, then God could, he's certainly powerful enough to intervene in the course of normal human affairs and do something miraculous. Now, did God do that? Well, we have to look at, you know, that, that presupposition, does God exist? Now, if God exists, then we can, we can look at the, um, the different cases of miracles and argue whether those happened or whether those didn't happen. And I think there's a case to be made that the resurrection is a miracle that has abundant historical evidence in favor of it. So N.T. Wright has talked about this at length, how the resurrection of Jesus is widely attested to by multiple witnesses in the ancient world. And that is a, that is a fact, that there's multiple people in the ancient world who claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. So then how do we explain that fact? And there's different ways to try to explain it. You could say, well, all those people were lying. They knew that they didn't see Jesus and they just cooked up a myth to try to fool people, to get money, to get success, to move forward or whatever. Now, the, one of the challenges for that view though is that the earlier followers of Jesus who claimed to see Jesus risen from the dead, in fact, not only did not get you know, riches and power and you know, a harem and whatever, what they actually got was killed. They got tortured to death. So if it's hard to explain a liar lying for the sake of, and the result ends up getting, you know, he gets tortured to death. You'd think that someone would just say, well, look, I, all, I made it all up. But none of, them, none of them said that. And when they started getting tortured, you could imagine people saying, oh, look, saying that Jesus rose from the dead, it's not going to get me these good things. It's going to get me killed. So you'd <laughs> expect them to recant it and say, well, look, I don't believe it. Um, you might say that they were hallucinating, but the trouble with that is when you get multiple people on multiple occasions all having the same experience, it's impossible to attribute that all to a, an hallucination. I mean, if you take LSD and I take LSD and we got 20 people taking drugs, we might all hallucinate, but you're going to see a, you know, a pink elephant and I'm going to see a green dragon and somebody else is going to see a talking plant. We're not going to all have the same hallucination if we all take drugs, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to have different hallucinations. So the question that arises is, look, if we uh, posit for the sake of the argument that God exists and God is able to do a miracle, is this something that is uh, historically likely given all these events that are 
uh, that we have uh, recordings of. And again, historians like N.T. Wright are going to say, yes, this makes a lot of sense to say that this claim is not just a myth, but it is also a fact. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, Chris. And um, then what is Jordan Peterson's theology, as you describe it in the book? And what is maybe some of the significance of him as a non-formal a Christian operating outside of the church? And uh, maybe how does that help him to appeal to a wider audience? Or? Well, I think the fact that he, Jordan Peterson, at least so far, is not a card-carrying uh, Catholic or a Christian is, I think that is an important element to what he's doing. I think it's very valuable because what he's doing, I think, is a kind of public exploration of these sorts of issues. And I think that's important in part because it is going to appeal to both believers and non-believers. So you can get someone um, who is listened to mostly by people that already agree. And those people want to deepen their understanding. And there's something good about that. Um, but what Peterson's doing is appealing, I think, to people who don't already see things in a Christian way. And he's showing them, hey, um, you know, you might have thought that these stories from the Bible are kind of meaningless, uh, pre-scientific and naive accounts of the world. But in fact, I've discovered as a non-believer that really they're not. They're really quite insightful and they really have a lot to teach us about how to live a good life. So I think his his standing outside, you might say, the formal fold of Christianity is uh, allowing some people who might not be open to hearing this message to hear it. So I think that that is definitely um, you know, a positive thing, that these people are hearing this important message from someone that they feel that they can trust. Mm. Yep, excellent. Thank you, Chris. And um, then as a Christian, what resonates most deeply then for you and I suppose many others about how Jordan addresses the problem of meaning, this perennial problem and how he pursues it without falling into this kind of lazy tribalism that many people nowadays seem to use as a replacement religion and um, more banal physicalist pursuits like you mentioned drugs and it seems to be as the nuns rise, it seems to be increasing opioid use and things in the States. And uh, over here, there's a, there's a lot of suicides and things like that. Uh, I want to ask you about um, maybe your, your own uh, love for Peterson in that respect. Or... Well, I think one of the things that I love about Peterson's work is how he confronts the reality of suffering. Mm. Because I think that, you know, whether you're a believer or not, everybody experiences suffering. I think that's just a fundamental human reality. And Peterson wants to really face that and really engage with the issues that arise from that. So what does he say? He says that truth is the antidote to suffering. And in other places, he says things like the antidote to suffering is having uh, the highest purpose you can. And in other places, he says that beauty is necessary if we're going to deal with the suffering of life. And for me, what that does is remind me of the, what are called the transcendentals. And that's the idea that ultimately God is the true, the good, and the beautiful. And so if that's true, then what Peterson's pointing us towards is, I think, quite interesting, that really, if God is the true, the good, and the beautiful, and the antidote to suffering is truth and beauty and the goodness of having a high goal, well, then really what Peterson's pointing to in different ways is this reality of God, 
right? And so the antidote to suffering, you might say, is God. And yet, I, I think it's more accurate to say, well, there is no antidote to suffering. I think whether you're a believer or not, you are in fact going to suffer. Now, this might be a balm to suffering. It might help ease the suffering to a degree, but there is no antidote aside from the hope of the resurrection. So what I mean is the best you could hope for is just an ending to your suffering. But if you die and that's it, then you die and it's an end to you. <laughs> you know, in other words, it's not really that your suffering ends and you continue. It's just you end. Mm -hmm. But the resurrection is this great hope that the suffering that we endure and we're always going to endure does have ultimately an end that isn't just the end of us, but is an end, a an true antidote to suffering. That is to say that we have a life after this life. We have a life to come in which every tear is wiped away and all suffering comes to an end. And we exist in this state of perfect love perfect love with God, perfect love for other people, and even perfect love for ourselves. And that is really the Christian hope. And so for me, as a believer, that's something that I hang my hat on, because, uh, you know, I have suffering in my life, I'm sure you have suffering in your life, everyone I love and care about has suffering. And my hope is that that's not the final word that there is something beyond the suffering that we endure, namely this hope of resurrection. Amen. And, um, I want to ask you then about Jordan's perspective on love and what is true love according to his more pragmatic school and how does that maybe synchronize or differ with this um, theological virtue of love in the Judeo-Christian understanding? So I don't recall in reading um, his work or listening to him, I don't recall him giving a real definition of love, but I think I think the best way to define love is in terms of three things. That is uh, goodwill for the other as other and appreciating the other and being united or seeking unity with the other. And I think those three things are really what love is all about. <clears throat> now, how does this relate to love understood as a theological virtue? Well, the idea of a theological virtue is that it's a gift from God. And so if we have the theological virtue of charity, what that means is God has given us the gift of love, of his own love in us. And so if we have the theological virtue of love, what we have is those three things. We have goodwill for others. So if we have the theological virtue of charity, we love God and we love other people. We have an appreciation of others. We're able to see other people as gifts from God, seeing in them good things. And we have a unity with God, because if we have the theological virtue of charity, what that means is <clears throat> that we are adopted children of God. God, as it were, lives in us. We have, there's different ways to put this, but it's theosis or divination or uh, living in a state of sanctifying grace. That is to say that we're living in God and God is living in us. There's a harmony between us and God. So God wills the good for others. And we share in that. We will the good for others. God is in us and we're in God. There's this mutual indwelling, so to speak. And so for me, the virtue of charity is in a sense, and it's not obviously unique to me, but it's the most important, right? At the end of the day, what really matters? Well, I think love really matters. I had um, someone ask me one time, one of my kids actually, 
um, said, dad, well, what if you're wrong about all this stuff, <laughs> right? What if God doesn't exist? And what if, you know, you die and you're just in the ground and that's it? Well, obviously I hope that's not true. But I said in reply, I said, well, if, if it turns out that I'm wrong about all that stuff and death is the end and there's no God and this and that, at least I'll live my life for what I took to be the highest good, which is to love other people and to love God. And at the end of the day, I think love really is the most important. And so if I live my life in accordance with the highest ideal of love, then I think that's something noble. And I think that's something good. So, you know, as you know, Paul talked about that at length, right? If you can prophesy and you can move mountains with your faith and you give over your body to be burned and you're just this most amazing person, but you have no love, it's all, it's all worthless. So at the end of the day, charity is really the, the key, the heart of this whole uh, Christian adventure. Mm, amen. And um, kind of seeing how that scales in at the societal level, I wonder how much of Jordan's appeal and um, his project, as it were, is already presupposing the societal um, fumes, the cultural fumes of the Judeo-Christian tradition. As you probably know, like Tom Holland talks about in Dominion, we've been so formed by these patterns of understanding that we have elevated even implicitly things like love to the center, whereas in other cultures, a power and physical force and things like that are more primary. Then do we run the risk in the absence of understanding it theologically and it actually being through true theologically then is jordan's work or works like that only a little stop gap to a more um ruthless a future if that makes sense and i think to um then is there a is there the capacity for joy even though it it is good and it, as an iterated game in line with what you said and what Jordan says, it plays out that for people to love, it might have p positive benefits in the society. But what I understand, even as a, a lover of Jordan's work and someone who follows him, is how that would bind a community. I can understand an individual choosing it. This may be the best way to live. But why would it bind a community unless... Um, it's genuinely theological. Does that make sense? Or um, I, w I wanted to ask you a bit about that and his his understanding of creation and redemption, those kind of bookends versus our Judeo-Christian understanding and what's missing, if that makes sense, and from his perspective. Yeah, so I guess what I'd say about that is that explicit Christian belief is you might liken it to, well, let me, let me back up. I think it's true that, as Tom Holland has pointed out, that our culture is implicitly Christian in all kinds of ways that are unrecognized. Now, will that continue indefinitely? Um, I kind of doubt it. I kind of doubt it. So I think that you can only live so long off accumulated cultural capital right? And that can just run out. So you think of it a little bit like a bank account or something, right? Where, yeah, you might have $100,000 now, but if day after day, week after week, year after year, you draw in the bank account, yeah, eventually you get down to, to zero and you know, you're in trouble and you're in mm -hmm. debt. And so I think 
that's maybe why the Christian scriptures speak of Christians as the salt of the earth. So if you think of salt, um, salt is something that preserves food, at least in the ancient world, it was used to preserve food. And even now it gives, makes the food sort of tastier. And so I do think that part of our role as Christians is to be that salt and to be that light and to hopefully uh, not just take withdrawals from the bank account, but to make deposits in the bank account so that not just for us, but for our whole culture, things can move forward in a more positive way. Mm, amen. And um, a more specific question, uh, and I'll not keep you too much longer, don't worry. So thank you so much for your patience. So um, I wanted to ask you maybe at a more political level, how this plays out. Uh, what are some of the holes in Jordan's conception of classical liberalism, as it were, uh, which seems to be falling apart, disintegrating in America and other places? Yeah, so, you know, the political dimensions of this whole conversation aren't something that I really talk about that much in the book. But I think one way to think about it is that our political foundations, in a sense, are theological. So I'll speak for the United States. Um, the Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So if we think of that American proposition as somehow fundamental to the American political order, you might come to the conclusion that, well, our political order is not going to continue unless we believe in that proposition. So do we believe that all men are created equal? Well, what does that mean? Some people criticize Jefferson and say, well, he means by all men, all male adult land-owning Protestants or something. And that actually isn't true. I've actually done some research on Thomas Jefferson's views. And he means, I think, pretty clearly by the phrase all men, all human beings, black and white, male, female, um, everybody. Now, it is true he owned slaves, but Jefferson himself noted the kind of tension and contradiction between his actions and his ideals. In any case, if we give up the notion of the creator, we have to give up the notion of being created equal. And if we give up the notion of being created equal, are we not sooner or later going to give up the notion that we have equal rights, that we deserve equal respect? And if we give that up, then it seems to me we're moving very far from a political order that is uh, what Peterson would recognize as classical liberalism, where mm -hmm. each individual deserves a kind of respect simply in virtue of being human and deserves therefore fundamental human rights. We can give all that up, um, but I think we do that at our, at our own peril. Mm. Thanks for that, Chris. And I wanna ask you next then, where can viewers or listeners find out more about you and your work, including this wonderful recent book? Uh, well, they could, I have a website um, with the university and I'm on Facebook and I'm on uh, Twitter and my Twitter handle is professor or prof <laughs> underscore Kaiser. So if people wanted to, you know, connect with me on, on Twitter, they could, they could go there. Um, so anyway, so that's uh, how they can connect with me if they'd like to. And yeah, I'm excited and happy that you made time for me to, to talk about all these things, because I think these are incredibly important and interesting issues, and to have a chance to talk, talk with you and discuss these things is, is a real pleasure, so thank you. Wonderful, thank you so much.